You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Okay, full honesty, who is really tired because of the weather outside right now? It just, I don't know what it does, but man, it, uh, it just drains me. So we're going to bring the heat and the energy. We're going to have some fun this morning. So if you have been with us for the last few weeks, we've been in a series called Witness, where we are talking about what it means to be a church going after zero lives unchanged by Jesus. In each of the five weeks of this series, today's the second to last week, in each of these five weeks, we're talking about a different culture marker for us as a church. And they're actually listed on the banners on the wall over there if you're in person, but these are our five zeros, our five longings as a church. And today, the one that we're going to be looking at is this idea of what does it mean to be a church with zero needs among us? Zero needs among us. So I want to begin by putting a statement on the screen that chances are you've probably seen before. How many of you have heard the statement, comparison is the thief of joy? Nobody's heard that statement. How many of us have heard that statement before? Yeah, probably most of us. Comparison is the thief of joy. And uh, I think that statement is true, but I only think it's half true. Not all comparison steals my joy. I don't know if, if you feel that way, but not every comparison steals my joy. Some comparisons give me great joy. Like this one right here, for example. Whatever you did today, whatever your shortcomings, you did not block the Suez Canal with your gigantic boat. Not all comparison steals our joy, right? Some comparisons puff us up. Some comparisons maybe create some level of arrogance or pride or even gratitude in us. I would say upward comparison steals joy, right? When we see people who we believe have more than us or have it better than us, or maybe in our social media world that we live in, that's a whole lot easier to do where we just kind of, we compare up and yes, that absolutely can steal our joy. But downward comparison, where we look at maybe people that we would perceive as not having it as good of us as us or in a less fortunate position. I mean, that, that type of comparison does a whole different thing in us. And I would argue that every single one of us spend at least some time sizing ourselves up to other people, don't we? I mean, if we're being honest, every single one of us spend at least some time sizing ourselves up to other people. Maybe, maybe you look out and you see somebody else who has a more successful business than you do. And you find yourself comparing and kind of that jealousy creeps in. Or maybe you look out and you, uh, you interviewed for a job and, and somebody else got it. And so you end up stalking them on Facebook, seeing who is this person. I say that from very personal. I have done that before, full confession. But maybe you look at social media or you look at other people. You say, if only I could live like that. If only I could look like that. If only I could have that. Comparison, man, comparison between people, it is an age-old problem. It has never not been a thing when sin is in the picture. In fact, if you look at even just the Jewish faith, 
right? To be a Jewish man meant that you were often comparing yourself to the people around you. I've talked about this prayer before, but one of the most famous prayers of a Jewish man would have gone something like this. God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. This would have been a prayer that Jewish men prayed all the time. God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Now, before you throw stuff at me for that statement, let me explain. For Jewish men and for Jewish people in general, it would have been an outright violation of their religion to help a Gentile in any sort of way because they saw themselves as fundamentally superior to Gentiles. And so if you're in the marketplace and a Gentile comes up to you and asks for directions about where to go as a Jewish person, you would not give them directions because it meant helping a Gentile. The good thing is no Gentile man knows how to ask for directions, so that really wasn't a problem. The younger people don't get that joke because it's not really an issue anymore because we have GPS, whatever. Um, But it got even worse than that. Like if you were a, a Jewish person, you couldn't even help a Gentile woman in her greatest time of need as she is giving birth to a child. I don't know why you'd insert yourself in that whole process anyways, but you weren't even allowed to help a Gentile woman in her greatest time of need as she's giving birth to a child because that meant bringing another Gentile into the world. I mean, that's how intense this level of comparison got for Jewish men and for Jewish people. Thank you, God, for not making me a woman a slave or a Gentile. This was the prayer of, of Jewish men as they woke up in the morning. And the question I want to ask you today as we begin is, who do you find yourself comparing yourself to? Who do you compare yourself to? Do you find yourself more often comparing up, comparing down, maybe a little bit of both? You know, I mentioned that we're talking about zero needs among us, and, and I might suggest to you that where comparison begins, our ability to love each other actually ends. Like where comparison steps in and begins, radical love ends. And if we want to be a church with zero needs among us, it means in some sense getting rid of comparison. And I believe the gospel of Jesus Christ actually frees us to do just that. You see, the early church, they demonstrate this. We've been tracking for most of the series with a guy named Paul. We talked about his conversion story just a couple weeks ago. This guy named Paul, who has this radical encounter with Jesus and everything changes. By the way, Paul would have been a guy who would have prayed this prayer, God, thank you for not making me a woman, slave, or Gentile. He probably prayed it more than anybody else, thousands of times throughout his life before he encountered Christ. And when we, when we look at Paul's story, there's some radical things that Jesus changes in this area for him as the church begins to be birthed and emerge out of this Jesus movement. The story we're looking at today is a story in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas and a few other people are on a missionary journey. It's their second missionary journey, and they find themselves in a Roman colony called Philippi. And there's a powerful, powerful encounter here that's a little bit less well-known that I want to look at today. It's in Acts 16 verse 16. And this is what happens. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. 
She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now it says in the text here, this girl had a spirit of divination. Other translations or other interpretations say she had the spirit of the python in her, which sounds totally awesome <laughs> upon first reading, but it's not. Uh, because what this meant is that the spirit of a python, the spirit of divination that she had in her meant all kinds of different people would come to her for having needs met, right? So people would come to her and have spiritual needs met. They'd say, what, what should I do in this situation? Relational needs met. People would come and they would, they would come to her and say, hey, should, should I get married to this person? Can you imagine if the local demon-possessed girl on the, the side of the street you ask her if you should get married to this person, and she just yells, run! That would not be fun. That would not be cool. But people would come to her. They would ask her things about, should I make war with this family, or should I enter into this business deal or that business deal? This girl was sought after for her ability to prophesy and to speak into people's lives in a way very few people could. And naturally, some people began to take notice and learned, hey, we could make a pretty penny off this girl's abilities. And so what do we know happens? She is enslaved, and she is forced to do this. This girl is physically and spiritually and economically and socially oppressed. Every single level of need, this girl is oppressed. She's oppressed spiritually because she is inhabited by the spirit of the python, this, this demonic force, and it is tormenting her. She's, she's oppressed economically because she's been enslaved by these people who are exploiting her for their own financial gain. I don't know if anybody else read the, the charges and conviction of R. Kelly this last week, but even as I was, this is like the first time I actually read about it this past week, like there's some shocking similarities there. This girl doesn't have her own agency. It's been stolen from her. She's a, she's a slave. She had no rights or property of her own. In fact, she was viewed as property, as someone dispensable. And so here you have this woman, and she sees Paul and Silas and the other people with them, and she shouts at them. She says, these are servants of the Most High God. Now, we read that through maybe an American or Christian lens, and we think, ah, she's saying something nice about these guys. That's not what they would have interpreted it as. For, for people in this girl's world to hear servants of the Most High God, she's not naming the Jewish God, the one true God. She is naming just a God, the Most High God. And so people listening would have heard her say something like, servants of the Most High Zeus or whatever God it was that she was referring to. And then it says, these men are proclaiming the way of salvation. In other words, for her hearers, it would have been, these men are proclaiming the way to wealth and health and prosperity. Servants of the Most High Zeus, these men are declaring the way to prosperity. Not exactly a Jesus gospel message. And so when you have Paul and Silas, Encountering her, I, I imagine Paul's old Jewish ways are probably ringing in his head at this moment. God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. He is encountering the slave, and I imagine him saying, God, thank you for not making me a slave. Do we still say that in the church today? 
God, thank you for not making me like that. God, thank you that I am not a slave to whatever, fill in the blank. God, thank you that I am not a slave to addiction like that person. God, thank you that I am not a slave to anger like that person or a slave to cynicism or materialism or whatever the blank is for you. God, thank you for not making me a slave in that area. I don't have to wonder if we do this because I know we do this all the time. I know we do this because I, I get messages from people who are so steeped in shame about their areas of need that even the idea of reaching out is filled with shame. It's filled with hesitation. In fact, we've, we've started this essential store recently where we're serving about 175 people at this point every month. And um, we're giving out free hygiene and household items. And I've gotten more than one message from people in our community that I don't know that look just like this. It says, hey, sorry for the personal message, but it's kind of embarrassing being on state assistance. So all I need is to bring my Medicaid or Medicare card to come check out what you have. You know, I'll hear from people who have needs in our church and statements like, I just don't like asking for help. Or I have a need, but I don't want other people to know about that. Or my favorite, sorry to bother you. <laughs> as if people are a bother. Can I just tell you as your pastor that if you're here and you have a need and you are ashamed to reach out about that need, it is a lie from the enemy of your soul. Part of, part of the church working like it was designed to work is that when we have needs, we say, hey, I'm in need, I need help. And the other part of it is, hey, some of us have the ability to meet needs in this season, and we want to step in, and we want to help that. But there's an enemy of our souls that wants to keep us in bondage and not have our needs met because he wants to convince us that maybe we're not worth it. Maybe we have it within ourselves to meet our own needs. Maybe, maybe we believe that we're the solution to our own freedom. Can I just say that, that apart from the power of Jesus Christ at work in us, every single one of us is this slave girl, desperately in bondage and desperately in need of, of saving. And I'm here to tell you that if you are in Christ, Jesus on his cross has already declared you worth rescuing. That Jesus Christ on his cross has already declared you worthy. He sees your need. He sees your desperation. Just like Paul and Silas see this slave girl, he sees us the same way in desperate need of saving. And he has already declared you worth saving. Amen. That doesn't need to be a question in your mind. And so what that does in us when we begin to understand this is it begins to free us to say, you know what, I don't have all the answers or solutions or, or things in myself. Sometimes I need external help. Sometimes I need help. Sometimes I need rescuing. Sometimes I need saving. Your bondage may not look like this slave girl's bondage standing on the street corner screaming at people. Maybe it is. I've seen something. No, I'm just kidding. I haven't seen any. <laughs> but maybe, maybe it is, but chances are it's probably not. But, but you have your thing. You have your thing you're enslaved to. 
I have my thing. Every single one of us have something we are enslaved to apart from Christ. We are all enslaved to something. And when this whole kind of nasty game of comparison creeps its way into a church, what can happen is I can convince myself that the place I'm in is because of my own doing. And the danger is that people in our church can leave with needs left unmet because all they see is Christians kind of pretending that they have their own kind of self-righteousness. And it's a really dangerous game when we're not just kind of all out, hey, this is my need. This is what I am in need of. I need help. Thank God I'm not a slave. I don't think the biggest barrier in this church to becoming a community with zero unmet needs is our willingness to meet needs. I don't think that's the problem. We have such a generous church. We have a church that gives and gives and gives. You guys blow me away regularly with your generosity. I don't think that's the problem. But I think if we want to become a church with zero unmet needs, it begins somewhere else. If you want to put that slide up. That our biggest barrier to zero needs among us is not our willingness to meet needs. I think it's our unwillingness to acknowledge our own need. It's our unwillingness to say, hey, there's some things in my life that I don't have the answers to, that I don't have the solutions to, and I need external help. What do I mean when I say this? So often, I think what happens is we talk about this idea of salvation and our journey with Jesus as a one-time thing, like Jesus saved me from whatever it might be, right? He freed me from whatever it might be. I needed the cross of Jesus Christ at my salvation, but then somehow there's this like, uh, unspoken thing that comes up that like, as I grow in spiritual maturity, I can just kind of buckle down and do the hard work on my own. Like I can figure out how to live this Christian life on my own, and I'm here to tell you that is not spiritual maturity. That is spiritual immaturity. You don't grow and need Jesus less and less. You grow and recognize that you actually need Jesus more and more. That's the mark of spiritual maturity. That's the mark of spiritual growth. Without Jesus, I will always have needs that are not met. Without Jesus, I will always be left in this place of wanting, of desperation, of having needs unmet. Friends, you never outgrow your greatest need. You never outgrow your greatest need. And that's what I love about the story is that God doesn't intend for you to stay enslaved to whatever it is for you. God at his heart is a liberator of people. He created us to live as free people, not as people living in bondage. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas do in this moment with the slave girl. She's screaming at them. This is what happens in verse 18. And this she kept doing for many days, screaming at these guys. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. Can I just say that Acts 16, 18 might be my favorite verse in the whole Bible? I love it. Because it's not something overly spiritual that prompts Paul to like do something about this. He's just what? He's, he's annoyed. <laughs> like this holy annoyance. He's just annoyed. It's like this girl is screaming at him and he's like, in the name of Jesus, shut up already. 
By the way, that does not work casting demons out of your kids. I've tried it, and it does not work. But there's this, this spiritual, this holy annoyance that Paul has. And he, if you read the text closely, he's not annoyed at the girl. It's not the girl that's annoying him. It's, it's the spirit within the girl. It's the way that she's enslaved. It's the way that she's in bondage. Because he doesn't scream at the girl. He screams at the spirit in the girl. The thing that's keeping her enslaved. He rebukes the spirit in the name of Jesus. And I got to tell you, like, I think that one of the, the biggest things that will change our world is a group of Jesus people who are willing to get annoyed about the right things in our world that are willing to get annoyed about gospel things, that are willing to get agitated and step in in the name of Jesus Christ, not from a place of superiority and not from a place of upward comparison and jealousy, but from a place of saying, hey, at the foot of the cross, all ground is equal, and I am annoyed by the things that are keeping you in bondage because I love you. Amen. That's the church. We never outgrow our greatest need. And so when we attempt to meet needs from a place of just charity or from a place of upward comparison or from any other place other than the foot of the cross, we fall short of how Jesus meets our needs. I, uh, I love this description of the gospel. It's just a simple statement. but I mean, my favorite description of the gospel. The gospel is just one beggar showing another beggar where he found food. That's it. The gospel is just one beggar showing another beggar where he found food. And as Paul and Silas speak into this girl's life, watch what happens in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, I can never say that word right, when they brought them to the judges, <laughs> they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. So Paul and Silas disrupt a system of bondage, and they are punished for it. Like the mob goes after them. Why is this? Well, for this girl's captors, it's because they dried up their revenue source, right? It's because they, they took away their, their profit, that they had trafficked this girl, they had disrupted the system of human trafficking, and the, the slave owners, they are just enraged, they're outraged. But why would the mob get so mad? Why would the crowd get so mad? Could it be that people who were going to this girl to have their needs met, are now all of a sudden disrupted by what Jesus offers. That in this statement, Paul and Silas are not saying, no, Zeus is not God most high. His name is Jesus Christ. And in the name of Jesus Christ, you find all of your needs met. there is one true God made known through the person of Jesus Christ. And apart from him, every single one of us stand naked and ashamed and in desperate need of rescue. And this small movement of Jewish people took this message so seriously, so personally, 
that they flipped the entire Roman Empire over this message. It was only a few centuries later that they had won the Roman Empire over, and this Jesus movement became so well known for the things that they were for, for the things that marked them as a community of people, that the Roman Empire began to take notice and the world was flipped on its head. I want to share just a few of those things that marked this movement because there are specific things in church history that we can look back on and say, this is what marked the early church and it turned the world upside down. And I believe if we reclaim some of these things, man, the world will not stand in the way. Let me go through these really quick here. The first one is this. The early church was radically hospitable to the poor. Radical hospitality to the poor. In fact, what was so crazy about this Jesus movement is that you had rich people and poor people setting aside those differences and coming together at the feet of Jesus. And if you were wealthy in a community, part of the expectation of belonging to that community was giving up what you had for the sake of your brother and your sister's well-being. Acts 4 describes the community of the church as one where people bought and sold and gave to each other as they had need. And it says this, there were no needy people among them. That's where this vision of zero unmet needs comes from. Acts 4, there were no needy people among them. The second movement that marked the early church was they were a community of radical forgiveness and reconciliation. It was a nonviolent movement that Christ's followers were people who stood up and forgave and reconciled before making war on each other. It was, it was so marking of the Christian movement up until Augustine that it was a nonviolent movement of forgiveness and reconciliation. The next one here is the early church stood firmly against abortion. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, abortion existed back then? There were different forms of infanticide back then. One of the most common was for unwanted babies to be carried to term, delivered, and then left in the dump, left in a field for the elements to kind of run their course. And who was it that stepped in and adopted those kids? welcome them in, raise them in a new family as their own. It was, it was the church. It was the church that radically sacrificed and lived out orphan care in a way that made the Roman world go, what is going on with these people? The next one here. It was a multi-ethnic and diverse community. They took multi-ethnic and multiracial um, just identities very, very seriously in the early church. We're quick to just blanket label that being woke today. It's not that at all. It was an intentional picture of what it means to be a Jesus people for the sake of the world, that Jew and Gentile can come together and can experience brotherhood and family and community. What force is at work to allow that to happen? The next one here. They had a countercultural sexual ethic. You see, in that time, in that age, marriage was just looked at as kind of a social advancement opportunity. And so you looked at things like arranged marriages and things like that. All it was designed to do was just move a family forward, give a family honor. It was very financial in nature. And the Bible comes in, the movement of Christians comes in, and they say, actually, marriage is about love. It's about self-sacrifice. 
It's about needing, meeting the needs of another person before I meet the needs of myself. You see, these five things were so radical and so countercultural that the world began to take notice of this new kind of ragtag movement called the Christian church. And there is one thing, I, I don't want you to miss this, there is one thing that knit all of these together, and it's this, the person of Jesus Christ. See, we have a lot of movements today trying to tell us one of these is important or another one's important and trying to kind of step in on surface levels and, and meet these needs. And I'm here to tell you, like, there is no movement out there today that encompasses all five of these things well outside of the person of Jesus. Political parties are trying, and maybe they can do one or two of them well. Debatable. <laughs> But the movement of the church looks different than any other category that we have in the world of meeting needs. The reason being is because at the center of everything we do is this desperate crying out that we all have need at the foot of the cross. Every single one of us. None of us come to this cross with the ability to stand our own two feet. Apart from Jesus, every single one of us is the slave girl. You guys, charity is easy when you view people as below yourself. That's, that's easy. You can feel good about yourself. You can pat yourself on the back. That's not the gospel. And staying stuck is easy when you compare yourself to other people. God, I'll never have what it takes. God, I'll never be worthy. That's not the gospel either. The gospel is that Jesus saw you and declared you worthy of having your needs met, you worthy of rescue, and it changes everything else around us. It's only in the person of Jesus Christ where our greatest need is met. So uh, a few weeks ago, about a month ago, we had a little bit of an altercation with the police out in, our, uh, out in our parking lot after service. And uh, I hesitated to share the story, but I think it is a really important one for us as a church to hear. And so there was a little bit of a, a domestic disagreement happening in the parking lot. And uh, so the police came and got involved. And I swear, they had like six different police departments here. I mean, we had Michigan State Police. We had Wayland Police. We had Gun Lake Tribal Police. I didn't even realize they're a real police department over there, but I guess they are. I, I, I told the guy that. He didn't like that very much. Um, but I, I stood there, and I, I was talking to these different cops um, after kind of the situation, and it was about an hour and a half or so. It, it took a while to, to resolve, and I was talking, and, and near the end, one of the Michigan State Police officers pulls me aside. He goes, are you the pastor here? I said, I said yeah. He said, I see your, uh, your opening an essential store. What is, what is all that about? I said, well, it's a, it's a store where uh, we have hygiene and household products where we invite people in from our community to come have needs met and we build relationships with them and it's this really cool thing that we're seeing a lot of, God do a lot of really cool things in. And he goes, sir, I've been a, I've been a cop for 30 years and I've been a Christ follower for about that long as well. He said, I would strongly advise you to reconsider opening a store like that. And he said, the reason being is because you don't know what type of people that's going to bring into your church. And I said, sir, with all due respect, I said, I know you've seen some things. And I've seen some things too. But those are exactly the type of people that I want coming into our church. And as I, and as I reflect on that and why that matters so much to me is because when you strip away everything else, 
when you strip away every category, every uh, woman, slave, Gentile category that our world has put up, we, we might have different physical needs, we might have different emotional needs, but at the very core, if you strip all of that back, when I stand before the cross of Jesus Christ, I am utterly in need. See, there is one person I'm willing to compare myself to, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. And when I make that comparison, guys, I come up short every single time. I come up in desperate need every single time. I find myself at the cross of Jesus Christ, utterly wanting, utterly desperate, utterly bankrupt, utterly falling short, utterly in need, utterly in desperation of saving. All other needs are secondary to that. So it's in that place that we meet each other's needs. Knowing that first and foremost, we have great need that can only be met through the person of Jesus Christ. And what I love about this chapter, this Acts 16 chapter, is it tells three stories of three people having dramatic encounters with Jesus. The first one is a woman named Lydia. The second one is this slave. And the third one is the Philippian jailer that we talked about the first week of this series. This name, woman named Lydia, the slave, and this Philippian jailer. Who are these three people? It is a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. Friends, this is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. That it bursts through every layer of need and it basically puts us all on equal ground saying we all come to this place in desperate need and that is why we can serve each other and that is why we can love each other because we don't have what it takes within us to actually meet our own needs. So as we close today, the text doesn't actually tell us if the slave girl trusted in Jesus. It just says she was freed from her oppression, freed from the demonic force, and freed from her enslavers. And I think part of the open-ended nature of this story is that it's actually an invitation for each and every one of us. It's an invitation that says, hey, in the person of Jesus, your needs can be perfectly met, but what you do with that is up to you. How you respond to that, then that's up to you. Will, you. will you receive that invitation? Will you respond to that invitation? And as I was thinking about how to close today, God just really laid it on my heart that, you know, I could challenge us to go meet this need or that need. We're, you guys are already doing that. The question that God keep putting up, kept putting on my mind is, where are you in need? Where is your area of greatest need right now? Maybe for you, it's in the area of your marriage. You just, you just need to cry out to Jesus and you just need to say, Jesus, I need an intervention that only you can offer in my marriage right now. It is going to take a move of your Holy Spirit to meet that need. Maybe for you, your, your area of need is financial. Maybe you lost your job. And I will never tell you that just praying to Jesus to meet your finances or to, you know, give you money. Well, I'm not a health and wealth preacher like that, not at all. But I do believe that when we bring that to Jesus, he meets us in the place that only he can in only a way that he can. And so maybe you're just filled with anxiety right now over finances or a relational situation or a school situation right now. And you need to bring that need to the person of Jesus. 
Maybe for you it's, it's a spiritual need. That you have just felt so in a season of spiritual drought. You're like, Jesus, just come, like Holy Spirit, just come. Just don't withhold yourself from, from me. Pour yourself out on this, this church. Pour yourself out on my family. Maybe, maybe that's the need that you come to Jesus with. I don't want us to even think about meeting the needs of other people until we've realized that Jesus is the one that meets every need within us. And it's only by his power and only by his grace that we move out in this world and meet the needs of other people. So we're going to have an extended time of worship this morning. We're going to open the floor for you to respond. In the last couple weeks, I brought up, hey, if you, if you have a prayer need, come forward and we'd love to pray over you. I'm going to say it a little bit differently. You have a prayer need. And so do I. You have a desperate need that you need to pour out at the feet of Jesus. And so do I. And so does everyone on the stage, everyone running tech, everyone serving, every single one of us have a desperate need to pour out to Jesus. What is that need for you? We have people around here who would be honored to pray for you if you come forward. In fact, I want to encourage you to come forward and be prayed over. We would be honored to do that. Josh, do you mind praying over people? Um, Heather, I'm sorry to put you on the spot. Would you mind praying over some people as well? Um, but as we worship this morning, I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to come forward. To, there's not that many people here. We have room to come forward and to just lay your needs out at the feet of Jesus as we worship him. And I promise you he'll move in that. I don't know how, <laughs> but he will. He knows how. So let me offer a prayer, and then we're going to respond in worship. Jesus, we come before you today and just say, we need you. God, we need you. We need you in our marriages. We need you in our seasons of anxiety and hopelessness, God. We need you. God, we need you to speak life into dry bones, to bring a wave of new life. God, we need your Holy Spirit. Like air to breathe, we need your Holy Spirit, God. And we just come before you this morning and we just pour ourselves out in, in humble desperation saying, God, apart from you, we can do nothing. Like your word says in Philippians 4, God, you meet all of our needs according to your glorious riches in Jesus. So that's the cry of our heart this morning. That's the hope that we walk in. And that's who we want to be as a church. And so God, I pray that as we worship this morning, that you will bless this time of worship, that you will move in this time of worship, that you will meet needs in a way that only you can meet needs, God. As we respond to you, it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Everyone said, amen. amen.